Welcome to the Citizen Stewart Show, a podcast about education in America, where we dive deep into the top headlines and add new perspectives about our schools and our democracy. I'm your host, Chris Citizen Stewart, Chief Influencer at EdPost, a media platform focusing on educational opportunity and justice for every child. Today's a very special episode, but before I tell you about our guest, I do want to just ask you to leave us a review after you have listened to the show. And if you think that you really appreciate the show and you really want to help us out, you can, one, subscribe, two, share the show with friends or others who you think might be interested in the topics that we cover here. We don't advertise, so we count on you as faithful listeners to help us spread the word about the Citizen Stewart Show. Today's show is a very special interview, and it continues the train that I've been on in making sure that I talk to people that don't believe the same way that I believe Talking across lines of difference has become very important to me because it gets a little bit boring just talking to the people that agree with you all the time and living in the echo chamber. So to that end, today's guest is Jennifer Berkshire. Jennifer and I go back quite a bit. Back to 2015, we used to spar on Twitter, and we used to have epic blog battles where we would write about the other or subtweet each other in a way that was not exactly always kind, but it sure kind of cemented who we thought we were in terms of activists and activism. I was very much on the reform side. She was very much on the traditional public education side, and that led to some very interesting conversations. Today, we've come a long way, and we have found ways to work together even across lines of difference. Just so you know that Jennifer is a block lecturer in education journalism and a lecturer in education studies. She has been teaching both at Yale, and she's starting to teach now in prisons, which has been a very interesting addition to the work that she does because she's inviting me to come in and talk to her students. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, The Nation, The Republic, and many other publications. She's also the author of two books, one book that I have read and one that I have not. The book that I've read is A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door, The Dismantling of Public Education and the Future of Public School. She wrote that along with Jack Snyder. She talks in this episode of The Citizen Stewart Show a little bit about the new book that she has coming out too, because she has become tired of some of the arguments that she made in her first book. So I hope that you enjoy this. Please let us know how much you either liked or didn't like this discussion because we plan to do more of these talks across lines of difference. Enjoy the show. Jennifer, thank you for joining the show today. I appreciate you coming on. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, you know, I want to talk about your book, Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door, and anything else that you wanted to update me on. First, a little background, just so that everybody knows. We've known each other for a long time. We've been on separate sides of the fence. And within the last maybe year and a half, two years, we've found a way to be able to talk with each other in a way that's very productive and I think more kind of collaborative than you know we have ever been. And we still hold, I think, very different ideas, except for maybe I've come around a little bit more to your side of the fence on some of these things. And I think that usually until like I went through your, your, uh, <laughs> went through your book and I was like thinking to myself, okay, see, there are still some things that we agree on and there are some things that we don't agree on. So I would love to just to dive in a little bit on what you were really trying to get at and accomplish with the book. But I will say, let me ask if this frame is right. If I could put it in the most simplest form in terms of the this versus that in the book, there is a group of Americans that see public schooling and public education as a public good for the common cause and for the creating a more unified country. And then there's other people who see it as a very individualistic, competitive, market-based 
effort in the United States. I don't know how else to put that. But really, that's the this versus that in the book. Is that a fair characterization? I would say that that's semi-accurate. And can I just suggest that before we get into our back and forth, I think people need to know when you say that we've been sort of trying to find some common ground, I think people need to know a little bit more about that. So I invited you to speak to my students last year. I've been teaching a seminar at Yale on the politics of public education, and I invited you to come and be the guest speaker when we were talking about school choice. And I have to say that much to my dismay, they just adored you. And they found you very, <laughs> very compelling and convincing. And the the whole the whole experience was I thought it was great. And I think that they particularly liked the idea that I would bring in someone with whom I don't always agree. And I would jokingly refer to you as a frenemy. And they thought that was really cool. And so <laughs> I've invited you to come and be a guest speaker again in the spring when I'm going to be teaching the same class at a medium security prison in Massachusetts. And so I think that gives people an, an idea that, you know, like we don't just spar on things on the site formerly known as Twitter, but that we we are engaged in this back and forth that I think, you know, challenges challenges both of us. And so you should also know that that while you were reading the last book and finding it quite irritating, as I can tell that you did. I wrote a new book over the summer. My co-author, Jack Schneider, who's an education historian, and I wrote a, a new book, and I am the lead author this time. Yes. And I feel like the new book, which is called The Education Wars, A Citizen's Guide and Defense Manual, sort of strips down to a more fundamental level what we're actually fighting about. And so when you sort of presented to me your version of what you think the fight is over in the first book, I'm already kind of bored with that, I have to say. Mm, interesting. And you're bored with it because there's a more nuanced way of seeing it or there's new actors at play. Things are different because, you know, I noticed like in your previous book, DeSantis is part of your conclusion of the book. And it's before, you know, his, he's really off on the juggernaut that he's on now. And I thought, man, a lot has changed. <laughs> a lot has changed. And I think that in in many ways, we were prescient, especially me. And that what prompted the the book was that when I heard the bipartisan case for education reform and things like charter school expansion and and tougher teacher evaluations, which is how those are the issues that brought you and I together, I heard in that rhetoric what seemed to me right-wing arguments. I've always been, my interest is in the intersection of education and politics. And so I was paying attention to that. And then the other thing that I was trying to wrap my head around is that as we become less equal as a country and as the influence of a relatively small number of very deep-pocketed individuals with conservative views, as their influence grows, what does that mean for the continued existence of something like public education? Because I knew from having grown up in the Midwest that virtually every Midwestern state now has its own conservative billionaire, and they have a couple of policy priorities. One is always school privatization. And the other is to get rid of the income tax. And so I I felt like the, the debate about education and what should be done to fix schools 
didn't pay nearly enough attention to the political currents swirling around those conversations. And I think that in many ways, I've been proven right that it's, you know, that it's impossible to look at what's happening in education policy and politics right now without understanding that there is something bigger afoot happening. And so when I say that I'm I'm kind of bored with that initial characterization of the book that you provided, it's not that you're wrong. That divide is definitely in there. But I think that in many ways, I've sort of moved on to thinking about more fundamental divisions. And that's actually why it's become possible for you and I to have the kinds of conversations that we're having. And name those. So what would you see as the more fundamental divisions? So I am somebody who reads a lot and I read a lot outside of education. And last year I started reading a book and I have to tell you that my world was absolutely rocked. <laughs> and the book is called The Big Myth. It's by the same people who wrote about how the debate around climate change had been sort of intentionally fogged. And, and this is really about the certain kind of selling of a, a myth about liberty. And it's by Naomi Oreskes and Eric Conway. And so they start out in the 20s. And it turns out that, that in the U.S., the first real parents' rights crusade was against the banning of child labor. And I had never heard this before. And there was an effort to, as part of the progressive era, to amend the U.S. Constitution to prohibit child labor. And by this point, you know, child labor is already on the wane, largely because almost every state has enacted some kind of a measure that now requires parents to send their kids to school. And when the authors are going back through the opposition to the ban on child labor, you know, obviously some of it was driven by self-interest that these employers, they liked the idea that the kids had nimble little fingers and that they were far less likely to form unions and demand things of them. But what they were really opposed to, like in their view, inequality was natural. That was the natural state of things, that there were some kids who were just meant to work in factories. There were some kids who were just meant to work in the mines. And, and that, that by saying everybody should go to school, the state was putting its thumb on the scales in the interest of making things more equal. And that's what these employers and these conservative industry groups were so opposed to. And I read that and I thought, oh my gosh, because I have been, you know, I'm trying to make sense of state level education policies that are so clearly going to make things less equal and and wondering like what is it what future do they see and so in some ways i feel like i've gotten a lot less patient with a lot of the specifics of the education reform debates and i want to know you know like is this policy aimed at moving us backwards and and what does this mean in the U.S. where we now have a loud and growing minority of people who don't believe in the idea of equality. And misguided or not, like that is the institution. That's what our schools are supposed to do, right? Like when you rail against things like what you call the belief gap, that's what you're responding to. We've been on different sides of that debate. But I think part of what 
unites us is that we believe that that's the role that schools should play. So if you believe that inequality is the natural state, is there even any room in your vision for public education? And I think increasingly what we're going to see is that the answer is no. So I get that. When I rail on something called the belief gap, it goes to a much deeper theory that I have about black standing in the United States. And that my real story, my true story about that is that we have a lot of unfinished business with historically marginalized people in the United States. And many people are fighting, kicking and screaming to ever find justice for them. Justice isn't just stopping doing a bad thing and then saying, let's all be equal from now on. Justice is actually like reparative. And, you know, we had uh, we have a group of people in the United States that had a 400 year head start on everybody else. And, you know, in terms of, you know, the, the racial part of this. And then when it comes to education and schooling, you have a, a newer group that actually weren't even here during that time that actually were part of the wave of bringing a bunch of white people here from other parts of the world. And they came in and benefited from what happened before they were here. And this just all these stories commingle into some unfinished business. Right. So. This is what I've understood a lot about my changing position on things is it was always about justice for historically marginalized people. It was always about, if it was about school choice, it was about school choice for people that need to own the means of education and never have for themselves in the United States. So we, when we have all the flowery language about public education being this kind of cornerstone of democracy, it feels a little bit like what the right wing does about the founding fathers, right? Like, like, you know, and it's almost like people are nostalgic for a time where we were screwed. Like we were, we were screwed in this nostalgia. So the left does a version of this with public educations and unionism and, you know, all of that stuff. And then the right does a version of this with kind of like American exceptionalism and you know, the founding fathers, like who, whose father are these people, right? They denied fathering us. So it feels often like we don't ever get to the point of answering the question, but what should we do for these groups? Like it, it, the system, like just being against education reform in a way feels like it's it's saying that this the system doesn't need to be reformed, right? So like the system, you know, I used to make the joke, God made the education system and on day two, everybody set about trying to reform it, right? <laughs> reform has like been the constant state of education, right? Like, like, and it's been left and right. It's been, you know, progressive and conservative reforms, like over those times. And I think some of those reforms made things better. Some of those reforms actually were regressive. They weren't intended to make things better. They were intended to, you know, for some people, they wanted segregation. So the reforms that they were after were reforms that would like, you know, kind of make segregation the rule, Right. And then, you know, in other ways, you know, reforms were meant to, like, make the school day more humane for kids and, you know, make the learning conditions more humane for kids and whatnot. That required a lot of reforms. So I don't know where we fit in in this epic battle between the big billionaire dollar people who want a bad world and the proletariat unionist public school supporters. Like, where do we fit the marginalized people? Yeah. And and I mean, right there, I feel like that's way too simp overly simplified of a divide. And so like one of the things that I'm really interested in right now is that, you know, like we hear one story after another about the kind of like rabid right wing school board stuff. And it's so easy to, you know, click on a story like that and just feel great about yourself. Right. 
like self-righteous, self-righteous, right? Like, oh, these people, what monsters. And, and part of what interests me is thinking about how, you know, there is also a whole nother group out there that suddenly feels empowered to challenge anything having to do with equity. And they are the affluent parents who, who are absolutely intent on, you know, using the schooling process to get, they are hell-bent on getting those kids into the Ivy League, right? And so they view equity as, you know, any effort to make things more, more fair and to, to you know, help, uh, help kids catch up as potentially a hindrance to little Jenny, right? Who, you know, like what she's going to have to give up something. And so some of the most ferocious backlash politics we're seeing are in communities that, you know, they are not in the South. They are not in Florida. They are in places where people view the schools as, you know, like an extension of their wealthy community. And I think that in many ways, when I say that, you know, I've sort of grown like i don't feel like the original the version of the of wolf at the schoolhouse door that you held up to start us off is an accurate reflection of my thinking now it's precisely for those reasons like as we worked the last chapter of the new book is basically arguing that unless we are able to come back to some conception of education as a public good it's basically over and that there you know it's it's fine for us to rail against school vouchers and the idea the hyper individualist model of say an education savings account but moving moving to an affluent community and making sure that no one else can attend those schools either, you've already done half of the work. And so so in some ways, I feel like I've moved, you should feel some sense of accomplishment in that I've moved much closer to your position than I I was when I started writing about this stuff. Well, I want to move you a little further. Oh, no. Oh, I just remember <laughs> I have a conflict. I have to go. <laughs> uh, no. Just on this thing, like you and your co-author, Jack, Okay, let's just let's just let's clear the air in one way. I maybe have over cartoonized you guys in our battles in the past, right? When we would have these discussions. I don't know your life. I don't know where you came from. I don't know. Well, you know I'm from the heartland. Well, I know that part, but I don't know like what your education experience was, like if you grew up around struggling people. I don't know what Jack's was. I don't know. So so it would be easy for me to say what I think it is and then go with that as a, as a cartoon of who you guys actually are. But part of my cartoon is this. When I hear these things about get back to a time when public education was considered a public good, right? Like you touched on this in your first book. <laughs> you touched on it in your first book where you said exactly stuff like that, public good and whatever. And then you admitted, you said it hasn't always been that way for Jews, are for immigrants or for marginalized people, for black people, for brown people or whatnot, you kind of admit that that was a concept, like an abstract concept that education is a public good. I would like to get to the, you know, listen, I support our libraries as one of the things that my government gets absolutely right, because an information society that is built on free and open information to the people with very kind of easy terms of how you can check out books and how you can access knowledge for free is like the most democratic kind of like good thing that I think our government should be doing. So it's the one thing I'll fight to the tooth and nail for. Schools are not anything and never have been anything like libraries in that they're open to all, that they distribute their content and their quality 
on any type of common basis, meaning like, like we've never been, so common schools is, is kind of a myth. You have 14,000 school districts, you have 100,000 schools, that many school boards doing wildly different things. I like to bring this up all the time because we talk about the system. The right does this a lot. They talk about the system and the government schools and whatnot, as if all of those are one thing and they're not right? And they never have been. And for us to get closer to, I think this is, I'm not solid on this yet, but for us to get closer to common schools and schools for the common good and, you know, education as a public good, we would have to really radically do something different to make sure that the way you access schools and the way that you experience them and the resources that you have in them and how how you are zoned into them and all this stuff all of that would have to face upheaval to get us to the point where we could theoretically think that they were closer to like libraries are or national parks, you know, where we can all access the same good. I guess that's a long-winded way of just saying, I want there to be a public good in education, but we've never had it. Like it's never existed. So for the new book, I would force myself, I would write in the mornings. Writing is not easy for me. I look with great envy at the amount of text that you are able to produce. And I get the sense that you just sit down and those the newsletter that you do, that it just pours out of you. <laughs> I am envious about that. So I would force myself to write in the mornings. And then in the afternoons, I would interview people on the ground where often in places where the promise of public education has, as a public good, and as one that in which, you know, kids, all different kinds of kids have equal access, has never been realized. And now they're looking at its dismantling. And those were the people that I was the most interested in talking to. What are they demanding now? And what I heard was that they were absolutely saying what you just said, you know, like we've, we've got to reimagine this, you know, like this is not working for us, but that their, their non-negotiables were things like, you know, like it, there had to be some democratic oversight. There had to be, it had to be paid for by taxpayers, you could not shift the burden onto individual families. And so I I feel like that is the debate that's happening in a lot of states right now. And so as a result, you know, like there's actually some really exciting organizing happening. And so I, when I look at a place like North Carolina, I'm going to be looking at the demands people on the ground are making. And I'm going to see like, would this satisfy Citizen Stewart? How uncomfortable does this make me? And where, where do I think we might potentially come together? Because North Carolina may be on the front lines of this argument, but by no means is it going to stay there. Yeah, I think this is really important. It's important that you mention North Carolina. Just, just reading a story this morning about a teacher that was fired for assigning kids to read Between the World and Me. And she was fired under the anti-CRT law. And, you know, two white students kind of reported her reported her for making white kids feel bad about themselves by making them read this book by a black author. And, you know, I only raised that as an issue to say, in the state of North Carolina, this is really what public education is like. It's not like all of the, the bigots of the world really want to race out and get private school vouchers and go to private schools. Some of them want the same schools that they've had all along. 
these like public schools in their little enclaves. I can't remember the name of the city where that high school is at that she taught at, but in that town, it's more ultra white, wealthy kind of, and the public school system really is their system. If you're a black kid in that system, that school system, you're kind of just screwed, right? So it doesn't seem like a privatization thing to me in that way. It seems like it's a fight over the soul of the actual system still. Even though there's a lot of people that say, hey, let me give you a coupon to get out of the system. There's a lot of people that don't want to take that. There's a lot of right-wingers that don't even want to take that bet, right? Like they just want their system, their school system, their public school system to work for them and them only, which seems like a function of any American institution. The courts, you know, you can use law and commerce and you can use any institution within the state government to work for bigots. So when we talk in these flowery terms about our American institutions, I'm with you now. This is where you and I agree with each other. We have to defend and fight for our democratic American main institutions, all of them. And the people that are pushing this idea that we need to dismantle them, and we need to get rid of the administrative state. They're wanting to do that so that we are all untethered and we're at the mercy of their overlords. So I totally get that now. But, but before we get to the but, so you just made such a key observation I see people on my side all the time that really like the only analysis they have of what's happening right now is that there's privatization and that somebody out there stands to make money. And that's it. That's another place where I feel like I've really lost patience with that level of understanding because it's not enough. Because exactly as you were just describing, we have both things happening at once. That on the one hand, at the at, in all these states, you have a tremendous push for private school vouchers, less regulated than we've ever seen. But there's also the realization that, you know, like the majority of kids in all these states are in the public schools. And so there, you know, you hear politicians openly saying that their goal is to drive their program, their particular political vision through the public schools, but also to make it to actually incentivize those kids you were just describing in North Carolina, to incentivize them to report on their teachers, to incentivize their parents, to use the existing structure to, you know, like file a lawsuit. You know, you can actually be fiscally rewarded for filing your lawsuit. And so it's 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 both things happening at once. And and I think that is it's so key what what you were saying that you know like in many instances it's just a kind of like making formal and explicit what was always happening in those schools. And this is why I'm so fascinated by this vibrant and growing movement in North Carolina to defend public schools because they know all this. And it is not just affluent white parents in Wake County. These are parents who are coming from eastern North Carolina. They're in rural communities where the gap between what the North Carolina Constitution says, the Reconstruction Constitution, and what they've experienced in their schools is so enormous that they are totally within rights to just throw up their hands and say, there's nothing to be redeemed here. And yet that's not what they're saying. Well, they want, I think, the normalcy and the reliability of a public system, even while many of them have a valid grievance against those very systems. So I think like what the right is over-indexing on is that the grievance that they have against the systems is sufficient to make them want to do away with it. 
And I think that's just a big piece of wishful thinking that has always been a piece of wishful thinking. And I think that that's a lie. I think it's a lie. And I think we know it's a lie. I've made this observation in other podcasts, even with the FBI, for instance. Yes, FBI did Pro on black communities and communities that were seeking to liberate themselves, Chicanos and others. But you didn't really have a movement of black people that were saying, we want to do away with all the Federal Bureau of Investigation, all that. They just wanted it to be better because the FBI was the one that was solving all of the civil rights murders, right? The murders of civil rights people too, right? So black people were like, yeah, Cointel was bad and we, we don't want you doing that sort of thing. And at the same time, I don't want you to get rid of, like people are talking about now, defund the FBI, you know, so that we have no way of investigating the crooks who are running our country. There's a lot of territory to cover when it comes to this marginalized people's unique agenda for what education needs to start doing for them. So in your your last book, I know that you, you know you have a new book coming out, but in your last book, there is this thing that I, I pick on where you guys take issue with the fact that people argue that schools could be a way to get ahead that schools can be turned into kind of like a jobs program. Like, you know, people see it as a way to prepare for a career and that sort of thing. But one of the basics of especially poor people, but marginalized people is the way that they know that schools are working is if their lives are material better for going. So if you go to high school and you get a job afterwards, for instance, it's different than if you get a high school diploma and you come back to your neighborhood, and you're no better off than you were, you know, previously. So that feels to be like a little bit of a difference of opinion with many kind of like grassroots normal people, not normal, but you know, like regular people, the proletariat, education should lead to some material improvement in your life beyond just thinking like liberal education thoughts, you know, like, no. Well, let me respond to that because so this is an argument that I have made like over and over and over again. And we're talking about something quite specific. We're talking about the pivot that the Democrats made starting in the 1980s, where they basically start to argue that, that you know, education is the only response to our various economic problems that we need. And so you're right. You're right. Like this is, it sounds absolutely crazy to most people when you say, you know, that it's wrong for schools to focus on job training. And so our argument is basically that that shouldn't be the only thing that they focus on. But really, it's a political argument that basically what the Democrats ended up doing was they lodge, you know, if you're somebody for whom the economy hasn't worked, you're basically being told that it's your own fault because you didn't get enough education, the right education. And then over time, we see that, you know, people get more and more education and the, you know, the the promise never materializes. But I'm feeling very conflicted right now about what role schools should play in preparing kids for college. So when when you and I met, it was really at the peak of the college for all movement. That's how we measure whether a school is effective. And now we're starting to see that Americans are turning against the idea of college. It's happening quickly and dramatically, and it's going to, there's a big political divide there. And so all of a sudden, like I felt like the college for all rhetoric was over the top, but I feel the same way that you do. Like it's, you know, well, if they're not, if schools aren't going to prepare kids for college, how do we even know what they're supposed to do? And I think part of the reason our current debates are so intense is because for a period of time, everyone who was anyone agreed on what, you know, why we had schools 
they might say college and career, right? But now, like, if you look at the polling data on what parents think schools should do, there is a crazy disconnect between the kinds of policies that, you know, somebody, you know, like an Arnie Duncan was pushing for 15 minutes ago and what parents think is important. So you'll hear, I made my students listen to a Moms for Liberty podcast last week, and they embrace the most back to basics. They want kids to be taught to write a check and make change at the cash register. And they see virtually like everything else as the nanny state encroaching on their parental rights. Now, that's an extreme end of the spectrum, but... Well, that's actually 50% of the country. <laughs> it's actually not that extreme. <laughs> it's actually kind of mainstream. It's actually like 50% of the country. <laughs> and at times, 51%, you know, and maybe it goes down as low as like 41, 49%. I want to challenge you a couple of things that you just said, because I think this is really important too. Okay. Okay. First of all, I don't see any evidence that Democrats ever said that education is the only way for upward mobility. I think if we're being fair to Democrats, their portfolio of issues that they have pushed have always involved entitlement programs, civil rights protections, changes in the way that we segregate people into places, some economic policies and welfare policies and health and human services policies and Head Start, like an assortment of kind of usual Democrat things to push that they have always been pushing since the 70s. And today you find a standard stock Democrat today, and they are still pushing all of those things. Universal health care is something that they've been pushing for a long period of time. Because of course, if you're not healthy, how can you earn? How can you live you know, a good life? If you're going to become bankrupt just by getting one medical bill, right? Which a uh, substantial number of you face financial ruin because of a medical bill, right? So I don't think it's fair to say that it was ever the sole thing that Democrats, that in 1980 and in the Reagan era that suddenly Democrats only cared about education. I think what very educated people figured out at some point was things like college for all should really be called college for the rest of the people because there's a group of Americans where college isn't even, an, it's, it's a non-gotiable. For their kids. And it's a non-negotiable because they want to train their kids to be the rulers of the universe. And while everybody else can poo-poo that if they want to, they are still pushing college for all for their kids. So I think the college for all thing was college for those other kids too. And I think that you just can't get away from the data that basically says every rung of education that you get a little bit higher up, the better you do in life on so many fronts, health-wise, economically speaking, your standing within you know, the world, your ability to be in the economic mainstream of America and enjoy the same type of life other people do hinges a lot on your education and your education level. I don't think it's the only reason to get educated, but man, it's a damn good one. No? So I just want to push back. Like I think people are starting to pick up on the fact that you and I could literally just go back and forth about this stuff all day long because we both have very strong we have both have very strong opinions. Yes, we could. <laughs> and so as the older person on the call, I want to take us back to the late 70s and the you know, yes, I I was quite young then, but it's impossible to kind of imagine just how how fearful the Democrats were that, you know, like Ronald Reagan is on the rise and this, you know, this, this argument that Democrats taxes could never be high enough for them. The state could never be big enough 
for them. And then they're presiding over this unwieldy coalition. And so they've got this civil rights coalition that's, you know, pushing for more and more rights. African-Americans, but also women, gays and lesbians, they'll never be satisfied. None of them will ever be satisfied. The teachers unions, they're striking constantly, right? Cities are crumbling, but the teachers still want more money. And so you have these, you know, kind of new Democrats rising up and looking at this and saying, you know, we're really going to be in trouble. And so I think when I hear you talking about the things they've always stood for, one thing that stands out to me is that in many ways, we've we've moved in a more progressive direction. That that, like, if you went back and asked those what they referred to themselves as New Democrats or Atari Democrats, if you had asked them about universal health care, they would have turned green. Because that was precisely the kind of government overreach that they were trying to steer the party in another direction. And also, you know, like the stuff that, you know, when the Clinton folks, the, the Clinton was very passionate about things like charter schools and partnering with Silicon Valley. And there's an element of it that's kind of slick and sales pitchy, but also like you get the sense when you go back and you read those speeches that he really believed it. He really believed that that it was time to try something different. But the result was that they ended up really overselling what schools could do. And look where we are today, right? Look at the poverty data that came out last week, that the poverty rate drops way down because temporarily... We get to do what virtually every industrialized country does, and we support kids and families. And oops, it ends, and poverty drops way back down. And so that's all. I would just push back by pointing to, you know, like there really was a change in how the Democrats came to think about the role of schools. You're absolutely right about the importance of college. The data isn't as clear as that at all. It's so much of it depends on where you go, what you major in and how much debt you have to take on. But I think what's really interesting and also concerning right now is that Americans, young Americans are turning against the idea that college is going to make their life better. They don't believe it's necessary. They think it's, you know, like they think it's just an expensive you know, it's not something they need to do. So that... I mean, but they're applying for college in record numbers, though. And the petty elite, and the and by petty elite, I mean those that are in the middle and upper middle class who aspire to be the wealthy one day. It is not a question for them. Like, I get that we have these polls and this research that telling us, especially right-wing people, are starting to question things they always question, which is being educated. But I just feel like if we really buy into that too much, we're going to have the elite and the petty elite still going to college and still making sure that all their kids are going. I mean, we're having battles about how many kids we can get into the elite schools, for instance. And, and you know, we have state colleges keep raising the prices because they can, because people do still see that as the ticket in a lot of ways. And it's a bad business. I mean, if, if this discussion was real, I think what we would be talking about is how we could make college accessible for people that want to do it, potentially free, because we know that there's a vested interest in the country having more kind of educated people for as long as they want to be educated. Like if you're 40 years old and you want to go back to school and be educated again, I'm like, listen, I will pay more taxes to make that happen because I'm so sick of the moron movement that we have going on right now in the United States. That's absolutely true. And it should not be, you know, like I'm in this weird position, you know, I'm an adjunct. So I teach one class in the fall at Yale 
And so I get to see what the very top of the line liberal arts education looks like. And, you know, it shouldn't have to be between that and then everybody else gets a stripped down workforce preparation for their, you know, like your chamber of <laughs> commerce mm -hmm. decides what classes your college is going to offer. So I'm actually agreeing with you. I'm, you know, I've been making the argument for years now that the college for all rhetoric is over the top. And now as I watch the statistics and I hear the the push from the right to make college solely the province of not just elites, but you know, like a big part of their argument is that there are too many women on college campuses. And so, you know, and that we ought to get back to the numbers that they had in the 1960s, right? And so I feel like I'm moving much closer to your argument, that my, the political argument I've been making doesn't feel as important. We're going into a dark place because people listening to this are not going to believe this. So if you don't believe what I'm about to say, just Google it. There's an effort afoot to start attacking things like no-fault divorce. Oh, yeah. And, you know, like like just, yeah. like it's going a little far now that even for the crazies, it's going far, you know, yeah. it's kind of like, well, wait a second, man, you know, like divorce and contraceptives, you know. People in my world are, they are totally oblivious to this, that, you know, like they, they click on the stories about Ron DeSantis, but they don't have any real understanding of you know, what the new right is and why somebody like a Ron DeSantis has a particular view of how to use state power that is different from what we've seen in the past. And so I, I feel like very impotently telling people, pay attention, and that education is right at the center of this. And it seems to me that if you're going to really understand what's happening in K-12 policy and also higher ed right now, that you have to understand these currents within the that are swirling around the conservative movement. And I think what's complicated is that they're not always coherent and they are particularly incoherent with respect to education policy. Let's dive in a little bit more on, on this particular piece about wanting people to pay attention to education policy. We've just talked a lot about education politics. We did not talk about education, like the actual process of making educated people. We just talked about the politics which is actually what we're going to be talking about next year, probably for the full year. We're going to be talking about education politics, not real education. <gasps> I came in the wrong season. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just saying I'm preparing. We're already doing it now. So that just lets me know that in a presidential year, there's going to be even more kind of incentive to talk about the politics of education rather than actual education. And this is where I'm desirous of getting to the real thing amongst you, me, the left, the right, everybody and saying, Okay, let's push all that aside for a second. What does it mean to make an educated person? How will you know they're becoming educated? What should be the scope, the sequence? How should you run schools? Like, how should you teach, you know, in classrooms? And so I'll wait to see what's in your new book. But in your last book, there is the thing that actually kind of animates me, which is the push against kind of testing and assessments and evaluations of teachers and those things, which to me just feel like the science of education. It's like there's a way to, to scientifically look at education and to know whether or not something is landing. For instance, if I were to ask any state the question, how are the black kids in your state doing academically? Are they hitting academic milestones? How are they achieving differently than your white students, which is something we didn't used to know before we started disaggregating data. We just used to 
push everybody together. And if the white kids were doing good, it looked like almost everybody was doing good, right? What do we need to do to get over this hump between those of us that believe that there is a non-market-based reason for assessing kids and having good government data around how our kids are performing and whether or not they're progressing and whether or not they're being taught the right way, whether or not we're distributing the quality of teachers fairly amongst schools and classrooms, things like teacher experience, teacher effectiveness is not Scientifically, we're told right now, it's not fair in the way that we do those things. So you don't have to be some sort of like, you know, right wing blowhard to want data, these type of things that we're talking about. So how do we find a version that the left can live with in terms of still getting good data, good assessment data of some sort? Yeah, well, I hate to rain on the parade, but I'm going to predict and and you probably already know this, that one of the things that we're going to start to see move across red states is that you will see states start to ban the collection of race-based data. Because, you know, all you have to do is basically read like a Christopher Rufo blog post, and then it shows up in the form of a Manhattan Institute report, and then it gets translated into policy. But th so this is another example of something where I feel like five years ago, the distance between us felt more vast than it does today. You know, there are there are real consequences to putting so much attention on just math and English test scores. You see that in the way that parents respond now to like that even after all this time, they're not bought into the idea that test scores are the best way to capture how their kids are doing and what a school is doing. And so I know you have mixed feelings about my co-author and co-host, <laughs> but he has this project where they are trying to design assessments that, that take into account a broader range of factors beyond just math and English test scores. They take into account things like student surveys and parent surveys. I think you would actually like it. I don't think you would feel like it was watering down the things that you care about, but it's giving us a broader vision of what schools do. So this problem just doesn't feel that insurmountable to me. Well, <laughs> first of all, just to push back on the idea, we have never just tested in math and reading. That's like been a myth of the left. We've never just done that. We also test in history and social studies and civics. And we keep data on the number of kids that aren't passing civics now because, you know, the right is screaming about the number of kids that can't pass a civics, you know, exam anymore and whatnot. It's because we have data on that. We also, you know, through NCLB had a lot of data on how much money was being put into schools. We actually put more money into them because that was part of the scheme. That was part of the whole kind of, you know, that was a bipartisan thing not where one side got everything that they wanted. One side wanted more money in the schools and they got it. The other side wanted more data and they got it. Now, neither of those sides are, are still at the table anymore. But we have measured a lot of different things, but I don't know that parent surveys and that sort of thing is going to fix the problem with our kids just not being able to read. And us knowing that they have been taught for like a decade or more, or two decades or three decades, how to read in a way that actually was not the most kind of advantageous way to teach them, Right. Only science is going to be able to do that. And part of me just wants to say yes to what you just said. Yes, I am for a broader way of measuring student success. I'm all for it. 
I've seen a lot of states and local communities try to do that. And it's something that I've thought unions should have done for years. Like it's not enough to just rail at the test and the testing. It's also your 3 million strong of educators in the United States. You should tell the public something different. Like, you know, here is the NEA or the AFT version of what our, you know, 3 million experienced educators think how we should get this data or whatever. So I'm with you in a way. I'm just worried about this, this idea that while we're still measuring all that stuff, we're still going to have the same problem around whole communities of kids not being able to read. Like we say, we only test reading and math, but we act as if those things aren't foundational to almost everything else that you're going to learn. Right. And you, that was one of the first arguments that you and I ever had. We met in New Orleans at a charter school conference and, you know, it was was intense. (laughs) And, um, and so, (laughs) and I was there, you know, I, I was working on a story about the New Orleans charter school experiment. And I just remember that at one point we were arguing and you, you said to me, there are two things that matter, literacy and numeracy. And I was like, I was on my thing. (laughs) (laughs) You you were on your thing. And so you're absolutely right. But man, you know, like I interview people. So I just, I'm interviewing people about the, the Houston school takeover and there's like a particular policy that, that like the context around it has completely changed. Like what even is the point of a district takeover mm-hmm, right now? Mm-hmm. And so that's what interests mm-hmm. me. So I'm interviewing all these people. And if there are other things in, in these schools that matter besides, you know, preparing kids to take tests in math and English, the teachers I'm talking to are not aware of them. And you you can say that it's a union talking point, but unions barely exist in Texas, right? Like there's no collective bargaining. There's no... And talking to a, a teacher whose job now involves reading from a script... Like that, like to me, that is just so depressing. And so I want to try to find the balance of what, like, I hear you, but sometimes at the policy level, this this stuff just feels really like, who is that really going to benefit? I feel like there is a difference in our constituency. And I think that's, I've made this diagnosis before in some of our disagreements. I feel like the woman professional teacher in the classroom is your constituency. So seeing through that lens, Things that are irritating to that particular person, things that that person doesn't like to do, the occupational kind of gripes that that person has become kind of top of mind. When I think about the class difference between that college-educated person leading in that classroom and the number of students in that class that will never become college-educated or that person are living the lifestyle that person is living, even as we think teachers are paupers, they actually are doing better than many of the students that they have in their classrooms now that public schools are mostly poor, now that the biggest constituency of public education now are kids that actually qualify as, well, let's just say they qualify as not doing spectacularly well economically. So you're going to be teaching soon in a prison. Like, what's the number of people in prison that are illiterate? Like the functional illiteracy rate of people in prison. It's going to be high. What's the literacy rate of the kids that you teach at Yale? It's going to be pretty high, right? Like, you're going to see kind of like, this massive difference between, well, anyways, let me just stop and say this. <laughs> Anybody who doesn't think that literacy and numeracy is really important, try and go a day without either. Uh, yeah, right? Just yeah, like, and just spend the next week with that, without either and just put them aside for a week and, and see how you do. And I have to say, you know, one of the things that's so interesting about teaching at Yale is that Yale is so wealthy that it has the ability 
to kind of just handpick who goes there. And so like my class, they are from all walks of life. And what's, what's interesting is watching their dawning awareness that there are, so I have a big chunk of first generation low income kids, kids who recognize now that they went to working class schools and that they received a completely different education than the kid who went to uh, school in an affluent community in New Jersey, let alone the handful of kids who went to elite private schools who are scheduling Zoom meetings with me all the time because, you know, there is no advantage that they don't already know how to seize. You know what? When you brought me there, that was like the biggest, like, first of all, I was just happy to be there. So I was like, you know, I still appreciate the invitation to come, but it's not something you could be prepared for if you've never seen it. Yeah. Like being on the campus and seeing it firsthand, if you haven't seen it before, I mean, if you've seen it, fine, you already know what that life is like. But it was such a daunting experience for me. And to think that everything that surrounds that school is kind of like the hood and that you go on the campus and you're living in a completely different planet. How that's not jarring for people, I just don't know. Like, I don't know how you could live in that city and not know that that's a jarring kind of, you know, tale of two countries, two Americas. Anyways, and you're going to get, you know, this is what's so impressive about your, where you've gone since I've known you. We should say this to everybody. There was a time in which you were an online person and there was a time in which you were, you were blogging a lot. You know, you're doing a lot of blogging. I was. I was an online person. And you were anonymous online. For at least a year, I was anonymous. And then you became you, Jennifer, and, you know, people knew you and you started writing. And now these two experiences, having students at Yale and having students in the prison, it's it's going to be interesting to keep up with you, like on what you kind of take away from that experience. Yeah. And I have to say, you know, the reason that I'm pursuing the prison option is because I taught for five years at Boston College in the journalism program. And I really felt like it was kind of crushing my soul for whatever reason kids had for being at that school. It was not to, you know, like read anything that I assigned or their main interest was in Boston College, but also their budding entrepreneurs. That's what they're, mm -hmm. they're young capitalists. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. and I just, I felt like I had done enough. And when somebody offered me the opportunity to teach in the prison program, I just leapt at it. And then I thought, you know who I'm going to invite as guest speaker, Citizen Stewart. <laughs> I can't wait to come. Well, listen, I want to end on the question, the burning question that I would have for you through all of this is, so like I've seen your critique, your searing critique of what's wrong in education, but what would the good Democrat have in terms of an agenda? Like what would make you say you got it right? in terms of an ad agenda. So I really felt like Biden missed such an opportunity when we were coming out of the pandemic to just seize the bully pulpit and rally the nation behind the needs of the students and acknowledge how much kids lost and how much they need us. And that that then would have set the tone for other Democrats. And what bothers me and worries me so much right now is that I, I hear Democrats basically being silent on any of this stuff. They don't seem to have anything to say about, you know, like occasionally they'll argue for more money. They'll, you know, like they'll make a sop to the teachers union. But we, we need them to make the case for why we need public schools, period. And I feel like there's room in that for many of the Chris Stewart critiques, but just, but not saying anything, letting the Republicans drive what is uh, objectively like a really unpopular agenda 
And obviously they have to be careful about, you know, like we can't turn education into something that's got a partisan label on it. That's going to be a disaster. That's just a bad outcome. But like make a stirring case and talking about what what schools could be and need to be now, I think is just so important. And it would make the some of this right-wing nonsense look much smaller and meaner. This is where we absolutely agree. Oh, wow. This is amazing. This is a good place to land. I mean, I actually believe 100% that there needed to be a more aspirational kind of talk with the country. And there still needs to be one, right? Yeah. It's missing. Yeah, there it's was missing. this thing, you know, we're going to do great things for the schools. We're going to give a $190 billion to schools and whatnot. That's an economic thing. Mm -hmm. That's money thing. But mm -hmm. that's not leadership. Right. That's not leading a country that's to be right. better than it is now. That's right. And I think I'm desirous of somebody to stand up right now. Yeah. And like, I think you and I could probably craft we the could. perfect speech that we think people should be giving right now. Right. If you're going to run for anything. And then we would each be like secretly cutting out things that the other person <laughs> had said. And you'd be like, wait a second. Where are all my lines about charter schools? And I'd yeah. be like, wait a second. There's no mention of the unions in here. No, I have to be clear. See, you're still being unfair to charter schools, but I have actually joined a union. So I actually have crossed more the path than you have on charters. You're still being very unfair to charter schools. And I am working on being much more fair to teachers unions, I think, as one of the last kind of lines and defenses against the eroding of our democracy wholly right now. The, the story I said earlier about North Carolina and that teacher, if there is nobody standing up right now for that and saying, we will not allow this. Yeah. We will not, you yeah. know, we will not lose our jobs because two kids want to be racist. That's right. That's, That's my new right. understanding of unions being able to. So anyways, well, listen, I appreciate you coming on. You're always a good sport about these things, but I do want when you get the new book out and everything, I want you to come back. I'm going to come back for your year of, um, of education politics. I'm going to commit to doing every single episode. Okay. <laughs> well, you should come back and then I'm looking forward to seeing your senior students and the new program that you're in. Yeah. The prison program. And also we should just keep having this conversation. I think in general, talking across lines of different Mm -hmm. about what will make us better. I think that's the thing right now. So we have to do more of it. So thank you. Appreciate you so much for coming on today. You're welcome. The Citizen Stewart Show is a production of the Branch Media Podcast Network. I'm Chris Citizen Stewart. You can follow me at Citizen Stewart. You can follow Ravi at Ravi M. Gupta. You can follow all of the Branch's podcasts at The Branch Media on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And check out our website at thebranchmedia.org. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review, give us a five-star rating, and subscribe to the show so you can join us every Tuesday for more of The Citizen Stewart Show.